The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything. available everywhere you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. On this episode of The Most Notorious Podcast, Wyoming's most infamous hired killer, Tom Horn, kills for the final time. And what it appears is that Willie came to a gate, opened it, went through it, and all of a sudden was confronted by Tom Horn and ran for it and came back to the gate. And as he opened it, he was shot twice from long distance, both right right through his torso. Uh, The second uh, bullet in particular was uh, certainly fatal. Welcome, everyone, to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Hope you are doing well, or at least putting on a good face. I am so pleased to have as my guest today John W. Davis. He is a Wyoming attorney, an Old West scholar, and an award-winning author. His most recent book is called The Trial of Tom Horn, which documents the 1902 trial of one of the more notorious hired killers in the history of the West. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Glad to. So what prompted you to write a book about this case? Well, uh, I have been writing about the enormous problems with uh, law and order in Wyoming in the late 19th and early 20th century since about uh, 1900. Uh, For whatever reason, I, I... became very interested in that that subject. Uh, the, the obvious uh, uh, source of that, though, is that I, I practiced law in Wyoming for uh, something like 43 years. I did a lot of trial law. Uh, I've always been interested in the his- history of Wyoming, but especially that which relates to the effect of law. And uh, in doing that, I, I tried to hit the, the big cases uh, that made a difference uh, in terms of the Wyoming's quest for uh, having a mature society. And uh, before you know, starting this book, I had written a book about uh, the sheep raid problems uh, in Wyoming. There were something like 10 men killed and uh, dozens of raids and, and uh, thousands of sheep, etc. But uh, I, I hit that topic. Uh, and then I, I went to uh, a broader look at all of the major problems that uh, were existing in the West uh, before, say, about uh, uh, 1890, there were enormous problems with assassination and raids and that kind of thing. Then the next book that I wrote was about the uh, Johnson County War, the infamous event that occurred in 1892 uh, in which uh, 50 men rode north, 
their cattle barons and, and uh, uh, their top hands and then some 25 Texas gunmen. And they had a list of 70 men to kill. And they rode up to uh, Buffalo to do that. And so uh, when I started looking around for a new thing to write about, I started, for whatever reason, looking at the trial of Tom Horn uh, and realizing uh, that, that this was a subject that, that had some of the components that I wanted. The, the most important was is that it ended up with a sensational trial. But uh, th- th- there were other reasons, uh, l- like a lot of these kinds of highly emotional cases from that time. Th- there were distortions, shall we say. I, I think I said something in effect that uh, the emotion uh, of the original event created a trajectory almost certainly leading to, to errors. And, and they were certainly true in, in the uh, Tom Horn case. And then finally, I realized that uh, it, it was a kind of modified sheep case uh, that had a significant, it was a significant landmark in this, this uh, steady quest toward stopping extra legal violence and getting law and order in Wyoming. And, and when you talk about a sheep case, basically what was happening during this time is that cattle farmers were at odds, often violent odds, with sheep farmers. Yes, very much so. Uh, for about 10 years there, uh, there were dozens of raids around the, uh, the state of Wyoming. Uh, and, and what happened uh, typically is that uh, some cowmen came in and shot up a, a sheep camp and, and uh they killed 10 men, all told, from that. Uh, but they, they shot up the sheep. They shot the dogs. They burned things. They kidnapped people. They're just one-man uh, crime waves. And uh, how shall I say? There were, there were good reasons for the conflict and also bad reasons. The appropriate reasons were that, that if sheep come in on a range, they eat uh, right close to the ground. And what that means is that cattle can't come in behind them and then have any food. So bringing in sheep just ruins the range, which, of course, made cattlemen uh, mad. Uh, the bad reasons uh, arose from a lot of conflicts, uh, uh, prejudices, shall we say, that uh, sheep were frequently uh, led by, oh, Mormons and Basques and Hispanic peoples. And there was a lot of racial prejudice with that. But one way or another, the whole thing had to stop. And uh, I realized that the, the Tom Horn case was a, a very sig- significant and important case uh, for, for that uh, final uh, result. So we'll definitely get into the trial. Uh, but if you don't mind, I want to back up just a little bit and ask you for a background on Tom Horn a summary of of his life up to his arrival in Wyoming, where the story takes place. Okay. Well, he was born in Missouri, and uh, uh, he lived a rather sad early life. His father uh, was something of a martinet and could be brutal. And, well, I remember there was this event uh, uh, just before Tom Horn decided to to go west at, at age 13, that he had uh, his, his pet dog uh, killed. He was very close to the pet dog, and that's kind of understandable because your kids whose parents uh, don't give them very much love and affection really attach to, a, to a, a pet, and that's what happened. And as he left, somebody just came in and killed his dog, and uh, he said it, it, it affected him uh, very deeply. And in some way, I think that this affected his uh, insensitivity toward human suffering. Uh, but in any event, he, he told his dad he was going to do that. His dad beat him brutally. He had to be in, in bed for a week before he could uh, leave to, to the West. But, but then off he went to the West, uh, most of it apparently walking, uh, and he walked all the way to uh, Arizona, uh, where he lived with the Apaches for a good time. There's Word uh, was that uh, he took an Apache wife and he had children. And then he sort of broke off from that and uh, became involved in, oh, such things as uh, some sheep raids uh, in the areas of uh, Arizona. And I think, uh, I'm not sure exactly when it was, I want to say approximately 1892, he decided uh, for whatever reason that he was going to go to Wyoming uh, and he drifted north. And when he when he got to Buffalo, Wyoming, 
I, I think he got there because they're just that that's uh, he arrived in May of 1892. And in April of 1892 was the time of this this terrible uh, Johnson County War. But he was perhaps interested in it. And he may also have had uh, a semi-official uh, basis for it because he had some connection with the Pinkertons. Well, it wasn't long uh, from there that he drifted down to southeast Wyoming and quickly found a niche there. After the 1892 Johnson County War, which has to be deemed a failure, although there were no convictions against the, the murdering cattlemen who went up there, the Wyoming uh, Cattlemen's Association decided to, or well, I suppose they decided is not the right word. They, they were losing all kinds of money, so they had to uh, they had to get new sources of money. Until approximately 1893, that was an organization of rich men, and and they rich autocratic men who who sort of ruled uh, brutally. But what happened here is that uh, they those rich men, uh, a bunch of them were gone because they'd gone broke. And they decided they had to add the uh, middle to lesser sorts of cattlemen. And that changed everything. That is, they, they could hardly advocate the kind of thing that they'd just done, the uh, mass murder of, of uh, small cattlemen anymore. And so what happened is that there was a small group of the, the cattle barons that broke off. And Tom Horn quickly found a, a happy home there. They found that Tom Horn was was a, a very good instrument to enforce what they wanted, which is frankly brutality, uh, intimidation, and murder. And uh, he, he was responsible during these times for the uh, shooting down of two homesteaders uh, in 1895, who were they were shot from ambush, what 150, 200 yards away, and uh, uh, both killed. In uh, 1900, uh, there was a similar kind of arrangement. And incidentally, we're just talking about the ones that we know about for sure. But in 1900, that occurred in a valley in, in Colorado. And uh, the, he shot down two men. Then, And then uh, a little later, I think that year, about 1900, uh, he got involved in uh, chasing down the uh, robbers of a uh, train. $50,000 was stolen from that. I think it, uh, uh, Butch Cassidy was involved in it. And it's, it's one of the opening scenes from Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. So he was chasing after men and, and uh, went up into northwest Wyoming uh, and found two men that uh, were just sort of camped out and gunned them down. At first, he went he went after the railroad and said, hey, I, I, I get a, a reward. But they apparently suspected what was going on, and so they refused to give him it. Then Horn's story about this changed, and he started talking about how the, these guys, he shot these guys and, and uh then, apparently, in their last gasp, they said, well, no, we didn't rob the train, but we we are wrestlers. And I came away feeling that that, that was probably made up by Tom Horn. So he had a long line of people that he killed. Well, what happened in 1901 was that uh, a man named Kells Nickel, who lived in the Iron Mountain area and the Laramie Mountains uh, that are north of, of Cheyenne, uh, Kells Nickel brought 3,000 head of sheep in. And uh, we think that was, I, I believe, and, and the people at the time believe it, that, that that was the precipitating event that led to uh, the gunman, Tom Horn, being hired. And as a matter of fact, it appeared that he was hired to kill Kells Nickel uh, and that the the killing of his 14-year-old son on July 19th, 1901, uh, was uh, not expected, although it was certainly intentional. So... His age at this point, Horn, he was born in 1860. So he was 41, 42 during the time the murder and the trial took place. Yeah, that's right. He was, he was, he was sort of well settled. He lived an odd life in some ways. He liked women. We know that. But unfortunately, most of the time they ended up being prostitutes, I think. He uh, liked the outdoor life that he led. He uh, was a fairly adventuresome sort. He had been uh, to, well, he, he, for example, went to Cuba uh, with uh, Teddy Roosevelt's Rough Riders, and he was in charge of the, the mule train, uh, played an important part in supplying uh, the men uh, in Teddy Roosevelt's command uh, in Cuba. He came back, uh, had to recover from yellow fever, and away he went. But 
he he was well known and very notorious at the time. But uh, in some form or another, I believe that the big cattlemen in the Iron Mountain area where where Kells Nickel lived decided they wanted to kill him because he brought in these sheep. And an obvious uh, candidate for that was Tom Horn. And he was hired. And what it appears, this this came out during the trial and various uh, testimonial evidence. What it appears is that uh, Tom Horn was uh, nosing around the Kells Nickel Ranch, uh, waiting for an opportunity, uh, no doubt, to do the same thing he'd done to several other people, that is, gun them down from uh, from hiding. And on, on the morning of July 19th, uh, 1901, Kells Nickel's son, Willie Nickel, was sent from the ranch over to a, a local small town to find a sheep herder. And he followed the normal road out of his homestead that his father would have. And what it appears is that Willie came to a gate, opened it, went through it, and all of a sudden was confronted by Tom Horn and ran for it and came back to the gate. And as he opened it, he was shot twice from long distance, both right right through his torso. Uh, the second uh, bullet in particular was uh, certainly fatal. And then he ran. And if you ever hunt a deer, uh, you hit a deer in a heart and it runs uh, and then collapses. And that's what poor Willie Nickel did. And the gunman, this they found out before they knew who it was, uh, obviously came up, turned the boy over, lifted up his shirt to see that it's, uh, it's his handiwork. Uh, and then just left him lying there. It was a day later that the, uh, the Nickel family, which couldn't figure out why uh, uh, Willie hadn't come back, was confronted with this, this terrible thing where uh, a younger brother went off to that same area. His duties involved putting a cattle herd there, uh, their, their milk herd or something like that. And he found his brother's body. And he came in and, and he was sobbing and, and his mother said, what's wrong? And he said, you know, Willie, Willie is murdered. And then began the uh, involvement of the, the local authorities. Uh, they went through an extensive coroner's inquest, which resulted in a trial. And well, let me, let me go into some of this. I, I don't mean to rattle on, but uh, the coroner's inquest was a very interesting proceeding. It was a proceeding that was was held quite a bit back then, that time in 1900 or so, when you had a suspicious death, to determine the cause of the death and, and if possible, who, who did it. And the county attorney, a man named Walter Stoll, came up from Cheyenne and, and started the uh, inquest uh, actually out there in the Kells Nichols uh, home, then had to go down to Cheyenne. And they, they interviewed a lot of different people. They found out who was in the area. They pretty quickly figured out that uh, Tom Horn had been in the area. He was well known as an assassin. I mean, one reason he was, incidentally, is that uh, when he lived in Cheyenne, he would, was a substantial drinker. And he'd go into bars and start drinking and start bragging over the people he killed. So he was a natural uh, target. But in the original uh, inquest, they couldn't really establish anything. They couldn't establish that, that Horn had been there and, and, Anything showing that he had fired the, the, the weapon. I should say that Kells Nickel was a, a contentious neighbor and he was feuding with all of his neighbors. And so one of the things that the coroner's inquest people looked at were the neighbors that he feuded with, see whether they, there's any basis to say that some of them might have, might have committed this murder, but, but that, that didn't follow through. So they finally, they, they adjourned the whole thing and they said that uh, he had met his death at the hand or hands of a person or persons unknown. Uh, in other words, we don't know who in the world did this terrible thing. And uh, the, the newspapers followed it very closely from the beginning. You, you weren't that far away from Cheyenne, and Cheyenne had three three excellent dailies. Uh, but they, they they said, you know, it just, just looks like it's, it's going to be another case that we'll never be able to find it. But about 10 days later, Tom Horn was arrested. And that, that was a, a sensational thing. Uh, Tom Horn at the time was a very notorious guy. It wasn't simply, simply the fact that uh, he, he was believed to be a killer. He was also quite an exceptional athlete. He won uh, 
some of the competitions at uh, Frontier Days, which even back then in Cheyenne was a, a world-class rodeo. He was quite a renowned, is perhaps too strong, but for those who knew, he was in a, they saw him as an exceptional weaver. When he was with the Apaches, it was believed that he learned how to weave uh, and construct uh, hand items of one kind or another, everything from ropes to some very sophisticated things such as bridles. There's a wonderful one that was uh, that I uh, have shown people from a northern Wyoming museum. Uh, but in any event, he had exceptional talent. But he, he was he was so the, the papers were so interested in him that that uh, they uh, every newspaper in Wyoming would if he blinked they 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 would talk about him. I, I found that out when I, I uh, did a a word search uh, over all of the old Wyoming newspapers. You can do that through a certain computer program. Uh, and I put it in, boom. I think it was 9,801 hits because <laughs> they, they just absolutely couldn't get enough of him. And uh, so here was the huge interest. Uh, newspaper stories all over the place. Uh, everybody in the town was just wanted to know what was going on. And then, then suddenly there was this arrest. And uh, so they, they started up the, uh, the proceeding preliminary hearing. And the courtroom was absolutely filled. People had wanted to know what in the world was going on with Tom Horn. And they, and they didn't know. And at first, they, they in the morning, they talked about this and that and whatever, and uh, just general stuff, showing, setting the location, etc. But then a man came to the stand whose name was Joe LaForce. He was a United States deputy marshal. And he was a rather renowned detective, rather remarkable fellow. And he got up in the stand and he started talking. And he, what tale he told was a long story. I won't go into all of it. But what it came down to is that he found a way to get Tom Horn to think that he, Joe LaForce, was a friend. And they got together and they were drinking some. And Tom Horn, uh, and LaForce had figured this out before, loved to brag. He was an insecure man and uh, he wanted to talk about uh, uh, some of his uh, feats in life. And uh, Joe LaForce handled it very cleverly so that by just sort of throwing out tidbits, he, he kept uh, Horn talking and Horn confessed to everything. He didn't tell exactly who were his employers at the time, but it was obvious that he had employers where he, he was hiding in, in ambush. What he did uh, when the boy fled, why he shot the boy, what he did thereafter to conceal his uh, Whereabouts, uh, his uh, uh, activity there. So, I mean, it, it was a full-throated confession, and uh, the newspapers talked about it. How, when it came out, uh, Tom Horn was standing there, seemingly with open jaw and, and uh, you know, his eyes popping out. Couldn't believe that all this stuff was coming out. He also confessed to some other murders too. The, the, four of the murders that I mentioned, he made he made very incriminating statements about those. And so, boy, oh, boy, they bound him over. Well, here was this uh, notorious fellow who had strong support from the cattlemen, but, boy, had he put his foot into it. Uh, but nevertheless, the cattlemen hired the best lawyers in the area, and uh, they they proceeded to provide him with a defense. Uh, their only problem was that the one of the best lawyers in the area was that prosecutor. Uh, he was really an exceptional prosecutor. But those lawyers pretty quickly figured out that uh, if that uh, confession uh, is the only thing we have here, if, if that's what the jury decides on, our guy is dead. So what they did, and this is a surprising thing, most of the, the trial focused on the testimony of doctors, very abstruse, very detailed, following the, the, the uh, uh, knowledge of the day, but nevertheless, uh, uh, pretty uh, high, highbrow stuff. And the purpose here was that the, the defense, which was supported by a lot of uh, well-to-do cattlemen and, and had some real clout, hauled up a whole bunch of doctors who said that it couldn't possibly have been Tom Horn who shot Willie Nichols because Tom Horn shot a 30-30, which is a, uh, a rifle with a, a, a diameter of 31 hundredths of an inch. And the holes... Uh, yeah, the contention on the part of the defense was that 
Willie Nichols couldn't possibly have been shot by uh, Tom Horn because Tom Horn had a 30-30 rifle. And a 30-30 rifle is a, a rifle with, uh, which shoots a projectile that is 31 hundredths of an inch in diameter. And the, these doctors testified that uh, the uh, holes that were found in, in poor Willie's body showed that the rifle that shot him had to be at least three-eighths of an inch, that is 0.375, significantly larger than, than a 30 caliber, or maybe larger, maybe like a 45 one-hundredths of a caliber. Okay, and by such an attack, what they were they were trying to do uh, is to show, to, to make that, that uh, confession uh, irrelevant. They're showing this simply couldn't possibly be true. Well... <laughs> The, the, the bad thing from their standpoint is that they had, uh, as I say, the prosecutor was superb. Uh, he had anticipated all of this coming down, and he had, first place, uh, his cross-examination of the doctors for the defense, the ones who said it could have been uh, uh, Tom Horn, was excellent. Uh, it impaired what they were saying. And then this attorney, again, his name was Walter Stoll, found uh, physicians of his own who gave good solid reasons why it definitely was that the bullet fit with the 30 caliber. That is the, the, you could not determine from the size of that bullet hole in the body what the actual size of the caliber was. And, uh, did a, just a terrific job on it that there were a lot of factors involved. One of the factors is that, that there was not an autopsy and, and by, uh, modern terms or under modern definition it wasn't an autopsy at all they did they didn't penetrate the body but they they didn't do anything for three days and remember we're talking about the middle of july and uh i won't go into it in detail but uh walter stoll uh conducted uh some of the most clever cross-examination i've ever heard and i and i i this was of special interest to me because i was a trial attorney I studied cross-examination. I believe that it was the most significant uh, aspect of, of any trial, whether it's a criminal or civil trial, to read the transcript of a, of a real master uh, in addressing this, this most important of cases uh, was, was just, to me, a very exciting thing to do. And I, I dwelt on it at some length. As I say, that was a surprising thing, that you had these physicians being grilled on, on the, uh, the finest points of uh, whether or not Tom Horn could have could have killed Willie Nichols, and uh, th- th- there were other aspects of it, but what the significance of this more than anything else, the significance of the uh, strong showing by the prosecutor is that the jury then turned to the confession, and uh, to make a long story short, they went went back in, and three hours later they came back and they found him guilty. And when they, when the press talked to the uh, jury, they all said, uh, when Tom, and Tom Horn did testify, they said when he got up there and he testified, what, what the prosecutor did is he took him over item by item of, of the confession. Uh, they had, they had an actual transcript of it. And when he did that, Tom Horn just wasn't up to it. Well, frankly, I can't see how he could be up to it because it was very apparently a lie. And, and the jury said, we, did not believe him. Uh, the more he talked, the, the tighter the noose got. And this was especially significant because Tom Horn got a very, very favorable jury, including a couple of friends. But it didn't matter. The prosecution had done such an effective job that he was found guilty anyway. Hello all, Eric here. So you can't fully understand the moment we're living in without knowing where we've been. On every episode of NPR's Throughline, the hosts take a story from the news and go back in time to where it started to answer one important question. How did we get here? If you are interested in the stories behind today's news stories or learning how the past informs the present, you're going to love the Throughline podcast from NPR. I've listened to and enjoyed many episodes of Throughline over the years and learned about a number of historical figures that I had never heard about before. And I've gotten insights into well-known historical events. 
through line approaches these figures and events from really interesting new angles, often telling a completely different story than the one that's typically told. Here's an example, an episode I particularly enjoyed. It's called The Lord of Misrule, and it's about a man named Thomas Morton, an early New England colonist who butted heads with William Bradford, governor of the Plymouth Colony. And Morton would end up publishing a book critical of the Puritans, a book that is considered to be the first book ever banned in American history. So, let Throughline take you back in time to the source of the stories filling your feed. Listen now to Throughline from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Hey all, it's Eric. So, eating better is easy with Factors scrumptious ready-to-eat meals. Don't feel like prepping, cooking, or cleaning and tired of takeout? Every Factor meal is fresh, never frozen, chef-crafted, and ready to go in just two minutes. There are 35 different options to choose from each week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor is really flexible for busy schedules, too. Get as much or as little as you need each week, pause or reschedule deliveries anytime. There are breakfast and midday bite options, too, like pancakes, smoothies, and more. And of course, made with premium ingredients. And Factor has done the math it's less expensive than takeout. In each meal, dietitian approved to be nutritious. The other day, I downed the salsa shredded chicken thighs with sweet potatoes and Southwest veggie medley. The perfect amount of spice, I thought, and really, really delicious. So head to factormeals.com slash notorious50 and use code notorious50 to get 50% off. That's code notorious50 at factormeals.com slash notorious50 to get 50% off. I highly recommend Factor and really hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Cheers. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? <laughs> you get the goofiest game in history, Queen's Podcast. Hi, I'm Nathan. And I'm Katie. And we're the hosts of Queen's Podcast. Join us while we spill the tea on women from history. We get into all kinds of stories here, like biographies of lesser known figures, for instance, Saida Haltura, powerful pirate queen. To the stories you might already know, like Marie Antoinette or Cleopatra, but with a fun twist. Each queen is paired with a cocktail that'll totally get you in the mood to hear fun, juicy, and dramatic stories from history. Because history is so much more than just dudes on a battlefield, and we believe that the female perspective Perspective and roles are just as deserving of their time in the spotlight. Right. So come get to know these queens. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers. So I want to go to the motive here. Um, he, he was hired, of course, by someone, <laughs> as you've said. Did, did the prosecutor attempt to determine the identity of the person who hired Tom Horn to kill Kells Nickel? Yes, they did. They, they went after it. There was a lot of talk about the newspapers saying, saying uh, when, when, if Tom Horn is found guilty, where we're going to find out who, who hired him. And, and they're the ones who got to go to the gallows, too. The only problem is, is that uh, that couldn't be raised in the, in the first trial. It wasn't relevant in the first trial. And even though everybody predicted that Tom Horn would, would break down and would, would tell the, the names of his bosses. And incidentally, uh, Joe LaForce, uh, uh, the guy who got the confession, also got some 
wonderful evidence out of some of these guys, fooled them into talking to him. But Horn managed to sort of uh, worm his way, not, not Horn, rather, but LaForce, managed to worm his way into the uh, confidence of, of one of the cattlemen uh, and get admissions from the cattlemen that pretty clearly showed that the cattlemen had been the ones who had uh, uh, hired Horn and had asked him to proceed that way. But uh, anyway, the cattlemen continued to support him. Uh, they uh, financed a big appeal to the Wyoming Supreme Court. The Wyoming Supreme Court talked about how what a superior job it was, but they still they they uh, would not overturn it. Uh, then they went into the to the governor of the state of Wyoming uh, and tried to get clemency. And and uh, normally a uh, big cattleman would have a special force that way, but it didn't work that way either. Anyway, uh, so the upshot was that uh, in uh, late 1902, Tom Horn was taken into the, uh, well, he was already at the uh, Laramie County Jail. That's uh, Cheyenne is the county seat of Laramie County. And he was hung. And the way he was hung, it was a very uniquely built scaffold. It was. It was quite different. Uh, there was a Wyoming inventor. I think it was a physician. And they were trying to look for a way that uh, uh, where you could. Uh, oh, apparently they had some problem finding hangman. Uh, and so this one fellow, this physician, I believe, came up with an idea of constructing a machine whereby you really didn't have a guy who pulled, the, you know, pulled any kind of rope. It was a device whereby you, you set the uh, uh, man to be executed on a little platform. Uh, and what that did also is it triggered the dripping of water into a weight or into one, uh, and I'm not sure exactly how it was connected, but it was connected to that little platform. And once it reached a certain point and a certain weight, it, it caused things to fall and the platform collapsed. Down he went and it's hung immediately. And in fact, he hung himself. Didn't they make a mistake in measuring his weight? In fact, uh, well, let me mention Tom Horn again. I haven't talked about him too much personally. He was an interesting man uh, physically because he was a great big guy for that time, 6'1 or 6'2, 204 pounds. And, and uh, he, uh, he would, he, there are pictures of him with other men and he just towered over him. But after he was uh, arrested and he, the, the sat in jail for something like a year. Uh, he seemed always to be very cool about the whole thing. But they found, uh, the authorities found that when they cut Tom Horn down, uh, that the, the fall had practically decapitated him, which is a mistake. I mean, sometimes uh, uh, incompetent uh, hangman would do that. Uh, well, the, the reason for that became apparent when they weighed Tom Horn. Uh, they found that he only weighed 155 pounds, not the some 204 pounds that he had before all of this started. Uh, and Tom Horn had always uh, uh, presented a, a uh, an unworried face. You know, they always, always wanted to stay cool under all circumstances. But what was apparent was that his uh, his arrest, his uh, conviction, and his uh, execution was in fact uh, worrying him a great deal uh, to lose that kind of weight. So the defense, during the trial, they claimed, uh, of, of course, that Tom Horn was not Willie Nichols' killer. Did they introduce other suspects? Did they try to shift the blame to someone else? They, they did, and they did a very good job of putting them forward. Uh, the problem was is that the prosecution always found some clever way to show that they were wrong about that. Uh, and uh, I talk about it in some detail uh, as I say, I, I, I've tried a lot of cases in my life and, and, and can, can, I believe, uh, uh, well appreciate a master at work. And time and again, I found that uh, this fellow, Walter Stoll, set up uh, his presentation of, of the evidence and, and the persuasiveness of it uh, so cleverly that uh, in the end, they went with him. One of the suspicions initially was, was that the murderer was a member of a rival family to the Nichols, um, the Miller family. Kells Nickel had a blood feud uh, 
basically going on with the patriarch of the Miller clan, Jim Miller. And, and it was suspected that maybe one of the Miller boys uh, committed the murder. That's exactly what they did talk about. Uh, and it was addressed very early. Uh, remember, I talked about the coroner's inquest. Uh, that's that's the family that the uh, that the prosecuting attorney hit right away. He was going to talk about where were you during this time and what did you do and what kind of rifle do you have and all that kind of thing. But they they, they just didn't develop anything. And and what was apparent after a while is that even though there was a lot of feuding, that uh, these these boys and they were. 13, 14, 15-year-old boys were actually friends. And, uh, and when it finally came down to it, it was very clear that nobody in the Miller family was guilty of this. Now, uh, I, I've had my suspicions that the Miller family may have known that some of this was coming down. And uh, I believe that the people who, who paid Tom Horn were other large ranchers in the area. But uh, in any event, uh, it was pretty clear when it was finally done that it wasn't the Miller family. One of the, the interesting witnesses was kind of a love interest to Tom Horn. She was a, a school teacher in a very precarious position. She, she was, at, at the point of the murder, she was being paid to teach both the Nickel and the Miller children in this little schoolhouse. And, and she found herself in the middle of, of this whole thing. She did. Uh, her name was Glendale Myrtle Kimmel. And she was very interesting. She was interesting for a lot of reasons. She was a tiny woman, uh, something like five foot tall. But what, one of the things that was interesting is that before Willie Nickel was killed, these two kind of got together with other people around. But it was obvious to everybody there that they were immediately interested in one another. And, and by some of the writings, uh, later writings, it was, it was obvious that uh, Glendale and Kimmel had a crush on this man uh, and that uh, he, she later came to the fore and and uh, in the proceeding before the governor, she tried to uh, get uh, Tom Horn off by some of her testimony, which was shown not not to be reliable. Uh, but there was an interesting uh, interesting connection. She was a bright, pretty, kind of sexy. There was some some of the comments were made at the time were would indicate that she was quite quite uh, appealing to men. And then one of the things I talk about somewhat in my book is that it looks like they should have gotten together. Because uh, in uh, 2010 or whatever the year was I wrote this, that's what young people do. <laughs> They'd start living together. But they didn't back in 1900. And uh, uh, nothing ever came of it, but it was, it was a rather fascinating interlude. Uh, let me mention something else, too. One of the fables uh, about this case uh, has long been that uh, the cattlemen somehow set Tom Horn up and, and let him down. And uh, that that the the trial was little more than a, than a prelude to a lynching. Well, when, as I mentioned, uh, I found that uh, when as years drag on, you come up with uh, fables. And this this I, I finally determined was definitely a fable, because the attorneys that were hired by the the big cattlemen to help their client Tom Horn were truly excellent. They came up with one thing after another, and they had to push the prosecutor Walter Stoll to the brilliance that he uh, exhibited. It was probably his most brilliant case. And one of the reasons why is that the other side was always come up with stuff that on the face of it looked like, boy, this, this is killer testimony. And again, the prosecutor always found the hidden clue to show that, that the, uh, uh, what they were trying to uh, put forward just wasn't correct. So some of us have, have the high noon image in our, in our minds when talking about gunfighters, old, old West killers, but, but Tom Horn didn't do that. I mean, he, w he was an ambusher. He murdered people with his, his rifle from long distances, hidden from view, in a cowardly way. Well, yes, but uh, actually the face-to-face the -face, uh, draw at, at high noon uh, in the middle of, the, of uh, the main street uh, was something of a fable. That almost never happened. I guess the closest thing, too, is probably the stuff down in Tombstone. But by and large, the killings like that, it was true in Wyoming, which I think it was true in other states, were, were from uh, ambush when, when the, uh, some gunman shot them down from a distance. So Tom Horn never admitted who his employer was. But you have your suspicions. Who do you believe hired him to kill Kells Nickel? 
Well, Tom Horn was an employee of a man named John Coble, who was one of the big ranchers in that area. Uh, and John Coble was sort of his factor, uh, who would deal with other people. And uh, there's pretty good reason to believe that, that uh, Coble was approached by several of the ranchers in the area, some of the larger ranchers in the area, call them four or five, and hire Tom Horn. And Tom Horn talked about monies that he received for this, incidentally. So was there any especially damning piece of evidence in the trial? Yes. Well, the the trial, as I say, finally came down to... Due to the, the very good lawyering of, of uh, Stoll, the t- trial finally came down to that confession. Uh, and what Tom Horn decided to do, and it was him, it wasn't his lawyers, I think it was probably at the, uh, in opposition to their, their advice, but he decided to go in there uh, and admit that, that uh, he had said everything that, that was alleged by, by Joe LaForce and, and other witnesses that he had said. And, and he came up with a story about how the, the comments that he made about killing men, about uh, hiding in, in ambush, uh, making such a good shot. I mean, he said things uh, supposedly such as it was the best shot I'd ever made and the, the, the dirtiest trick I'd ever done, that all of that was joshing. Tom Horn said that whenever uh, I got together with Joe LaForce, we always talk about the men that we killed. And so all of us were having this little contest. And uh, he, he was he was. Uh, uh, saying that men he killed, and then I talked about the men that I killed. I, I wasn't about to be uh, over over uh, <laughs> exaggerated by uh, by Joe LaForce. Uh, and the jury, who knew him well, I go into that in some detail in the book, uh, let, sat there and listened to him very closely. When they came out and, and talked to the newspapers, they said uh, the moment he started talking and the more he talked, the tighter the news got. It was just not believable. And and uh, that was, again, a product, I think, of some excellent cross-examination by the uh, prosecutor. One of the hardest things to do, if you've ever cross-examined, uh, is to sort of go, go light sometimes. And what the prosecutor decided to do is, is go through every one of those statements, just sort of follow up the things that... Uh, Tom Horn had said that we, I really didn't believe those. And, you know, just sort of a nice, easy, underhanded softball to this guy and get him talking. And the more he talked, the worse and worse it got. And as I say, that's what the jury thought, too. <laughs> so and it, 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 it is a psychologically hard thing to do if you're a prosecutor. But the uh, prosecutor did so. It was a brilliant move, and it ensured the prosecution, the conviction. The... <laughs> The wild thing about that confession is that LaForce had a stenographer hiding in a closet recording that confession. And he really covered his butt on that, didn't he? He did it beautifully. Of course, uh, you got to give some credit to the prosecutor. The prosecutor, apparently, at one point, uh, when, when uh, LaForce proposed this arrangement, he, he said, get somebody close by. Uh, and uh, it, it was handled... Very well, but the uh, uh, prosecution or the, the authorities at the time were lucky in that uh, one of the first things uh, that uh, Tom Horn said to LaForce when they, when they got together on this fateful day was, uh, let's go to some private place uh, like your office. And uh, <laughs> LaForce said, yeah, yeah, well, I guess so. And <laughs> after he found that out, he managed to find an excuse to split off, and he went to these two men that he prearranged with, uh, and and uh, put them in in a, in a closet. And uh, there there was a, a court reporter who who took shorthand and took it all the way down. And there was a deputy. And the reason for the deputy is that they were so close that the uh, prosecution, the uh, the prosecuting authorities, believed that that there's a chance that Tom Horn would hear about it and come busting in that. Uh, door with guns blazing. So they wanted a deputy there to counter him if he did. <laughs> Fortunately, he never did hear anything. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure during all of that, they were holding their breath a goodly amount of the time. This, the uh, court, court uh, stenographer uh, is not a fellow who's involved with th- these kinds of uh, 
wild uh, adventures uh, normally. It's a, he, he leads his life in a rather staid and uh, sedate way. After Horn's conviction and hoping for clemency, there was a plan, uh, right, to, to break him out of jail. There were, uh, there were a lot of stories about it that ended up in the newspapers. And uh, given how it all finally came forth, I had to conclude that, that most of those uh, wild stories were right. And uh, uh, what, what finally happened is that uh, the, and I don't know who it, what it was, the, the, uh, his friends on the outside, Horm's friends on the outside, managed to smuggle somebody in the jail who would provide information back to, uh, to uh, the people who wanted to get Horn out of, out of uh, jail. In any event, the plan was is that uh, that Horn and another man who was there would overpower the deputy uh, and escape. And in fact, that's what they did. There was a big fight back and forth, back and forth. The deputy was was incredibly lucky he wasn't killed because uh, Tom Horn had managed to get a hold of a, a pistol. And uh, in the course of wrestling around. Uh, with Tom Horn, this deputy had managed to put on this safety and it was a Belgian pistol and it was an odd safety. Uh, but when Tom Horn finally wrestled away, uh, the pistol away from him, he tried to shoot the guy, but he couldn't, couldn't fire the weapon. Anyway, then he, he, I don't know if he threw it down, but then he went running out and, and the jail at that time was close to downtown Cheyenne. And he started running around Cheyenne and a bunch of men noticed that, that he was going out. Apparently the word spread pretty quickly uh, and they went running after him. And, and it was a Sunday morning, but amazingly, there were all sorts of men, men at work and they had guns. And and uh, it might have turned into an absolute disaster because they chased after him and fired away, uh, you know, with a bunch of people down there shopping. It's amazing a dozen innocent bystanders were killed. But, but finally, Horn tried to fire back again with that pistol. Couldn't do it. They caught him, beat him up some and, and brought him back and... <laughs> Anyway, uh, they thereafter put him in the cell and uh, set up a Gatling gun in there to make sure that wasn't going to happen again. So was Kells, Nickel, and his family, uh, were they satisfied with the verdict? They were, although one of the interesting things uh, was that, uh, remember I talked about how they they walked this guy back to uh, the cell? And Kells, Nickel showed up in there. Uh, and I uh, started haranguing the crowd. Somebody get a rope. Get a rope. You know, we can settle this right now. And about that time, the sheriff showed up. And the sheriff walked over to Kells Nickel and said, if you don't shut up, I'm going to put you in the jail cell with Tom Hart. <laughs> so Kells Nickel shut up. <laughs> and they got him back in the cell. <laughs> I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> so. so Horn. As he waited for his execution, did he hold out hopes to the very end for a pardon? He appears to have believed that. But nevertheless, he was calm through it all, and no matter what happened. It, it was a remarkable thing. They they tell this story about how there were some people coming to interview him uh, a day or two before he was executed. And, and the, 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 uh, the workmen there were building the scaffold and they were testing it and banging it around. So you, know, you could clearly see, you know, the drop mechanism was, and apparently it didn't, didn't phase uh, Horn a, a bit. But as I've, I've said before, that uh, he put on a good front, but underneath all that, it really did. So you don't, you don't think that there is any question that, Tom Horn murdered Willie Nickel, right? I don't. Um, and, and I, one of the fellows who uh, was the reader of my uh, manuscript who strongly recommended that it be printed uh, believed otherwise. <laughs> but uh, uh, he's a good guy, and, and uh, I always respected him and tried to work with him and all that. But uh, he, this fellow was uh, uh, one of those who... Uh, with other people, spread it around uh, a certain kind of group that read uh, stories about the Old West, that, uh, that Tom Horn was railroaded, that, that the big cattlemen were, were doing him in so he wouldn't uh, squeal on them and, and all that kind of thing. None of that worked out. And that is, when I looked at it and, and uh, compared it to the facts as I knew them, 
and I had a wonderful body of facts. I won't go into the details, but I, I just had a, just a mountain of evidence. Uh, I had to conclude that that, that uh, idea that he was somehow railroaded was simply wrong. For those people out there who, who don't believe Tom Horn committed the murder, who, who is the person that they think did it? Um, there's a lot thrown around. The Millers is one. Uh, uh, they talk about some other ranch families uh, or other people. What they also say is that uh, uh, the defense was done so poorly that they were certain to get a conviction when he was obviously innocent. And uh, as I say, and, and as I, I think this has really been the theme of a lot of what I've said, the case was not as represented today. Uh, and in fact, the prosecution was superb. The, the defense was superb. I, I looked at that case as a litigation masterpiece. And it wasn't because anybody led him, led him to the scaffold, so to speak, but, but simply because uh, the prosecutor did such a strong and, and good job of showing that, in fact, Tom Horn was guilty of exactly what he was charged with. And you make that point in your book as well. Even if he had been found not guilty of killing Willie Nickel, he, he had already admitted to other murders in that confession. And it was probably inevitable that he would hang soon. He, he did confess it, and they were, they were, were bad statements. And uh, the authorities uh, in uh, Laramie County, where two of the men were killed, took note of that and said that if he's not convicted in this case, we're going to try him. The authorities in Colorado said if he's not convicted in this case, we want him. So you're right. Yeah, he, he was in trouble either way. So are, are there any physical locations um, related to the murder or, or the trial that, that still exist that people can actually go to and visit now? There are. And uh, th there is uh, the original... U.S. Marshal's office is still there. It's on Lincoln Avenue, uh, which is uh, also uh, U.S. Highway 16, and it's in downtown uh, Cheyenne. And, and uh, it's only three or four blocks. Which, what's the direction there? I think it's uh, directly to the west uh, that uh, uh, where you come to it. And the people who own that building leave it open so that you could take an elevator up there and you can go into the same room and you've still got the closet there and the, the, uh, uh, some of the furnishing is the same. And it's a marvelous, marvelous place to go to. Uh, I, I went there several times and, and, uh, if anybody goes through, uh, Cheyenne, that's a good thing to do, you know, and, and I quickly was, uh, you know, I, I interrupt myself too much to go to the exact location, but it's three or four blocks, as I say, to the east of, of downtown uh, Cheyenne. And, and uh, the people say uh, at uh, any of the historical society or, or the uh, uh, Wyoming archives would know exactly where to get to. And I'd recommend it because it's fascinating. And let me tell you, there's another place you could go to. I went there a couple times uh, and uh, deep in the... the uh, <laughs> deep in the heart of the jungle, actually, deep in the heart of the forest, uh, Laramie Mountain Forest, there exists uh, the fence. And remember I talked about the fence that Willie Nickel came to and he opened uh, and he went through and he closed and he came back to and he was, he was shot there and, and all that sort of thing. That fence is existent. You can see it. <laughs> the gate is existent. You can see that. And the setting is very similar. Now, the difference is that you have a vegetation that has fallen down and some is new grown up, which is significant from the standpoint of figuring out such things as line of sight fire, you know, where where uh, the killer might have been, that kind of thing. But nevertheless, going to that place gives you a darn good feeling about exactly what it looked like uh, to Willie Nichols on July 19, 1901. The, the one bad thing about that is it's not like the uh, uh, the old marshal's office. It's private land. Uh, and I don't know whether folks would let you on or not, but uh, uh, I went on there with uh, uh, a couple of esteemed uh, writers, and uh, so we, we they were good enough to let us go on, on the land. Wow, that, that's incredible. And they are aware of that, and, and, and the owners keep it there for historical reasons. 
They absolutely do. And and I say good for them. Yes. <laughs> well, this has been excellent. So your book is available through Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and it can be ordered through independent bookstores too. Yes. Yes, they can. You can, you can order it directly from the University, University of Oklahoma Press. Uh, if you wander through Worland, Wyoming, I've got them. <laughs> so anyway. Well, great. This has been so much fun. Uh, thanks again. Sure. Glad to do it. Again, I have been speaking to John W. Davis. His book is called The Trial of Tom Horn. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.